Let's turn to Ephesians chapter 4, if you're not already there. Ephesians chapter 4, 11 through 16 is our text for today, for this morning. Jason is going to dig in next week to verse 17 and following. But this week we're going to talk about the gifts of the king. Last week we looked at how Paul had reminded the Ephesian Christians that walking with Jesus was going to require something. I talked to the kids about this last week. Walking worthy was going to require sacrifice. Paul mentions right off the bat he was in prison writing this book to remind his readers sometimes it takes sacrifice. And he made a point to say that he was a prisoner of God, not of Rome. And I made the comment from our home team study that said that God's fingerprints were all over his prison chains. He began to describe what a worthy walk looks like at the beginning of chapter 4. And he gave some some kind of definitions of Christian conduct. And you can look at them with me. There were five of them. He talked about humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love, and then maintaining the unity of the Spirit. And we talked about those things last week and how we should be eager to maintain unity in the body because it is a reflection of the unity that God has within himself in the Trinity. He also quoted from Psalm chapter 68. And we talked last week, this is a hymn or a song of victory. He said that Jesus there came all the way down to earth to save, but then he also has gone all the way back up to heaven to reign in authority and in rule and in power. And it's out of that overflow of victory that Paul leads us into talking about the gifts of the king today. So let's read together chapter 4, verses 11 through 16, and then we'll pray and continue on. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Let's pray. God, that that is our desire that you would build this body up in love. Not that we would make, make a name for ourselves, Lord, but that so that we can proclaim and shout it out from the top of the mountains that Jesus is Lord, that Jesus is King. Lord, you give gifts to your people out of your victory, and we want to know best how to use them, how to honor them in honoring you. And so, Lord, I would pray that you would teach us this morning how to do some of those things. And, and remind us, Lord, the whole purpose of this is to lift up high his name, to glorify your name. And so we pray this in that name. Amen. So we always want to keep in context where we've been, where we're going, where we're at. And so remember in the book of Ephesians, where we're at, Paul is explaining, Jason mentioned this, how Jew and Gentile Christian can come together together as the church, as one people. It's no longer 
reserved for the Jewish nation. God has broken down the barrier, we talked about already in chapter 3, from sinful man and a holy God. So now everybody who puts their faith and trust and belief in Christ is part of his body, his church. And so when he talks here about the gifts that are given, they're in relation to the kingdom that he is establishing, the the body of Christ, the kingdom of the church that he is building. And so right off the bat, I just want to make this clear. The gifts that the king gives, the gifts of the king are for the benefit of the church. The gifts that he gives us, you and me and the church bodies, are for the benefit of the church. He gives them to people, to his people, to build it up. And it's really just as simple as that. If you want to condense all of today's message into just one little phrase, that's it. God gives gifts to the church for the building up of its church. Okay? Now, we can argue, people can argue about the use of these gifts, the the manifestations of these gifts, the longevity of these gifts. But at the end of the day, I want us to understand that these are given to the church to build up the church. And if any one of us, any level of position or giftedness starts to push our gift forward as the most important and make something about ourselves, then we are not using that gift to build the church. We're using that gift to tear it down. And the Bible is very clear. Paul in many of his other writings is very clear about how to use those gifts. When a person is doing that, when a person is tearing down the church in divisiveness, they should be corrected and called to repentance. But I want to be clear about something else in all of this too. I don't want this caution about using our gifts properly to cause you to not want to use your giftedness in the church. I don't want to stop or deter you from that. On the contrary, I want to spur you on to love and good works. Verse 16 of this chapter tells us that we are joined and held together by every part. Paul's using the body analogy and he talks about every joint of our body. He says every joint, every part is holding itself together. You know what this tells me? We need each other. We talked about that already. We can't say, the eye can't say to the foot, I don't need you. We need one another. And so if you look at verse 11, Paul starts to kind of lay these things out. And I think what he's talking about here are positions or offices in the church body. Verse 11, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. There's a particular focus to Paul's list here on positions of leadership in the church. Now, in other places, you can see in Paul's writings, he's talking about the giftedness that are given to each member by the Spirit. But here, in particular, his list is more focused. He's honing in, I think today, in our text, on who are gifted people in the church who are gifted in articulating the gospel, in teaching the word, and in shepherding the people. These are the words that he uses. He tells us the purpose right off the bat at the beginning of verse 12. The purpose of these positions of these people is to do what? To equip the saints for the work of ministry. That's their purpose. Before we talk a little bit more about that purpose, what they do, uh, I want to look briefly at, at the the positions that he talks about here. There's, there's several of them that he mentions. Just briefly talk about these. Apostle and prophet, those are the first two that are mentioned here. They, these two words have a pretty broad 
relatively broad range of meaning in Scripture. And so my intention today is not to argue their full scope or their longevity or any of that sort of thing, but just kind of give a brief explanation of what I think that they're used here for and why. So during the first century of the church, it seems like there, there was the uh, position or office of apostle and also a spiritual gift of apostle or apostleship. I, I say the word office because that's the term that's used in Acts chapter 1. Verse 20, you might be familiar with that, that passage. It's where Judas had just hung himself and they were replacing his position. And Matthias ends up taking his position. And in that context, Peter himself talks about apostle as an office. That's the actual word that he uses there. So the office or position of apostle was held by Matthias who took Judas's place. And then the other 11 disciples along with Paul. The people who held this office of apostle were chosen specifically by Jesus himself. You, you know that we know that from the gospels. He chose his 12 disciples. Um, we find out in uh, Galatians, Paul says that it was Jesus who specifically called him out, who chose him. These men were given the task of laying the foundation of the church. That's the way Paul puts it in Ephesians that we're talking about. Their teaching was laying the foundation. There were other men that we see in the New Testament who had what I would consider the gift of apostleship, but not the office specifically given to the twelve and to Paul. And I've listed those in your notes with the scripture references that you can look up, but I'll quickly go through them. James, Barnabas, Andronicus, Junius, Apollos, possibly Timothy and Silas. Really at its core though, what does the word apostle mean? It means one who is sent. It means a delegative authority, one that is set apart, or just one that is sent. And so in that sense, if that's how we define apostle in the New Testament, I think we should, one that is sent, guess what? Every one of us fall into that category, don't we? Because every one of us is one who is called out from the world and sent on mission to go and to preach the good news. So we're all considered apostles in that way, but not all of us hold the office of an apostle like Paul or the 12 disciples. So prophet, in, in kind of a similar way, prophet just means um, an inspired speaker. Someone, I like this definition of it, someone who applies God's word to God's people. That's what a prophet is, what a prophet does. So basically a prophet proclaimed the message from the Lord. And sometimes we see in scripture that that their message was revealing truth about God to his people. Sometimes a prophet's message was more predictive in truth-telling or forth-telling what was coming. Now keep in mind in all of this, the early church, the one that we're talking about, the one that Paul is writing to, they didn't have the complete Bible available to them at the time. In fact, some of the early Christian churches had little to no writings from the New Testament authors at this time. If you think about just the book of Revelation, it was finished towards the end of the first century. And the Lord, so the Lord sent prophets to proclaim God's word to his people who would not have had access to his word otherwise. God divinely chose and provided gifted prophets to proclaim his message until the fullness of the canon that we have as scripture was complete. Last thing that I just want to point out about apostles and prophets, the New Testament authors, Peter, Jude, the author of Hebrews, even Paul himself, 
They refer to apostles and prophets in the, in the past tense as something that has come and gone. Second Peter chapter 3, Jude verses 3 and 4, they talk about how people should not stray from the message that the apostles gave. Past tense, the apostles gave, not are giving, gave. The author of Hebrews says he speaks of those who have performed signs and wonders. This is a past tense, performed in the past tense. Even in our text today, verse 11, Paul uses the past tense word gave. He gave these positions to the church. If you just kind of skim back, and you can do this with me, chapter 2, Ephesians chapter 2, look at verse 19, 20, and 21. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but your fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. The church structure has been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, with who being the cornerstone? Jesus Christ is the cornerstone. He is the linchpin. He is the one that holds it firm and secure. And so will the cornerstone ever be moved? No, if you want to maintain integrity in the structure, the cornerstone remains unchanged. And we know that Jesus Christ is the cornerstone and he never needs to be relocated. He never needs to be readjusted in that structure, never needs to be repositioned in the building. And the apostles and the prophets, Paul said in verse 20 of chapter 2, that our faith is built on the foundation of the prophets and the apostles And if the builder is any good, and if his ways are true, how many times does a foundation for a structure need to be laid? One time. If the builder is good, the foundation is laid one time. So if you look in the book of Hebrews, six different times, the author of Hebrews talks about how Jesus Christ came and was our sacrifice once and for all. The foundation has been laid, brothers and sisters. It only needs to be laid one time. So moving on in our list, we've talked about apostles and prophets, and Paul adds to those, he says, evangelists in verse 11. In reality, every single one of you is an evangelist. If you know Christ, you are called to proclaim the gospel. That's what evangelist means. But I do think that some people are uniquely gifted in this area. And just some off the top of my head, Billy Graham, incredible evangelist. Another D.L. Moody Even further back, George Whitfield. These guys were incredible evangelists. They were given the opportunity, I believe, by the Lord to preach the gospel truth to people, for people to hear. A commentator, John Gill, he says this. He says, evangelists were companions of the apostles, like Philip, Luke, Titus, Timothy, and others. They were not fixed as stated ministers in any one place, but were sent here and there as the apostles thought fit. So it's possible that evangelists, even in this time, they weren't tied to any one place. They were sent as needed to different people and to different areas and to different bodies of Christ as needed. Look at the next phrase, shepherd teachers, shepherds and teachers. Evangelists may not have been fixed to any one place, but we get the impression, the way that Paul writes here, and the meaning of these words is that shepherds and teachers were fixed to one place. Now, there are a number of ways for us to understand the Greek word shepherd here. So let's, let's clarify some terms. 
In the ESV, at least, it's translated shepherd. And it is the same word, get this, it's the same word for pastor, elder, overseer, bishop. Okay, it's the same word in the Greek, and it's referring to a guy, a man, who, is devo- who has devoted, regular, and involved ministry in a body of Christ, in a church body here. He is a shepherd who cares for the flock. He protects it. He defends it. And at times, he sacrifices for it. Shepherd does that for the flock. Now, for a pastor shepherd, it's about more than just getting a paycheck. It should be, Paul says, it's caring for the flock. It's protecting the flock. It's correcting it when needed. It's nurturing it when needed. It's sacrificing for it when needed. And it's not, it's not easy. In the book of Hebrews, church members are told to submit willingly to their leaders. Because their leaders are keeping watch over their souls. That, that holds significant weight for leaders in the church. There is not an elder, I would hope, in any church anywhere that would take that kind of a scripture lightly. We will be held to account for how we operate, for what we do, for how we lead. And leaders are told, in the same passage, leaders are told to serve the flock. Not out of duty or with groaning because we have to, but joyfully. And the author of Hebrews says, if they, if they serve with groaning and complaining, it's of no benefit to the body of Christ. So this has to mean more than just like, well, I'm going to put up with everybody I go to church with again this morning. It's more than just putting up with one another. I think it's, it's a call to mutual love and submission. Notice, though, in this verse 11, the phrasing of shepherd, pastor, and teacher is a little bit different than the ones that came before it. Now, this could mean that pastor and teacher are one and the same thing. Pastor, teacher, uh, shepherd, teacher. It's certainly true that every pastor or elder or shepherd in the church is called to, to teach. If you look through the qualifications of an elder in a church, teaching is one of them. It's a big one. It's one of the main qualifications that sets them apart. Pastor and teacher could also be describing overlapping functions in the church body that come from separate people. Some people are pastors. Some people are teachers. Now, it's true that all pastors in a church should teach, but not all teachers should or can be pastors. So really, whether shepherds and teachers are one in the same or different positions, Paul's intent, I think, should be clear. So I want to be clear. Here's the intent. The church needs faithful people who will shepherd the flock and faithful people who will teach sound doctrine. Because that's where he goes next in, in the verses. These people that we just talked about, they help build up the church on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, the cornerstone of Christ, and on every gospel preacher who has come before them. So my job as a pastor elder is not to reinvent the meaning of scripture for relevancy's sake. And this is one reason why we don't only look to modern day understandings of scripture. Think about where that view is taking the evangelical church for the most part today. Leaders and churches are sifting the teachings of scripture through the filter of a man-centered and post-Christian culture. And the results are exactly what you'd expect. People that identify as Christians aren't quite so sure anymore that the Bible is reliable, that it's completely without error. 
They doubt whether Adam was actually a real person or that Jonah really spent three nights in a fish or that Jesus physically rose from the dead. When we reach the point where churches are planting more doubt than confidence, we have a wishy-washy people who say they're Christians, but who have more confidence in their feelings and emotions than in the word of God. And we're on shaky ground. People who claim they're believers are abandoning the doctrines that Christians have held tightly to for hundreds and hundreds of years for the sake of relevancy and acceptance in our culture. So this is why we go back and look at what the church believed hundreds and hundreds of years ago. The litmus test, though, is not, is it relevant for today any more than is it, is it old enough to be true? Those aren't the, the, the litmus tests of whether we teach something. Everything we teach in the church, every doctrine that we hammer on should be measured against the standard of God's word alone and not my ideas or your ideas or your feelings or the culture around us. The standard of doctrine in the church is scripture alone. And we talked about this several weeks ago. We talked about sola scriptura, scripture alone. And Paul says in chapter four, verse 11 through 16, our text today, that the king has given leaders to the church to stymie this trend, to stop this trend of wishy-washy Christians. He tells them why these leaders should keep teaching and what their effect, what the effect of their teaching will have on the church. So look at verse 7 just for a minute. Back we see that in verse 7, every believer is gifted by Christ with varied grace. And then now in verse 11, we see that the church is gifted by Christ with people in varied offices. Just as a marriage, each believer has the same value to God, husband and wife have different functions in the the marriage. What's the function of people in these offices, in apostles, in prophets, and teachers, elders, shepherds? Well, we mentioned at the beginning, verse 12, to equip the saints for the work of ministry. So we've defined what some of these things are. Now we get into the meat of all of this. What does this mean for us as a church body? Leaders in the church are supposed to teach, train, and equip the saints. Who are the saints? You, Christians. You don't have to be dead to be a saint. Okay, Christians in the church... Leaders are supposed to teach, train, and equip them so that you guys go do the work of ministry. The church does the work of ministry. I think, I think we understand what this means. I really do. I think we get it. Church leaders are not the only ones responsible for ministering to the church body. You are. Every member is. And so this is something that is dubbed this every member ministry mindset. That's a mouthful. But think about that with me. Every member ministry mindset. And we need to keep this in front of us. I'm going to talk about this just for a second. Practically speaking, this means that you don't have to wait for one of the pastors to go visit your friend in the hospital. It means that you can go do that. Or you can call someone in your small group or in your Sunday school class or your neighbor and say, hey, I'm going to go visit my friend. Would you come with me? Now, please let me know that your family member or your friend is in the hospital because I'd like to go visit them if, my, if I'm able. But this doesn't mean that you wait for me to do it. It means that you don't wait for a deacon to go and fix the leaky roof 
of a church member's house. You don't wait for them to do it. You pack up your tools and you go see what you can do to to help fix their roof. Now, make a deacon aware of that need so that we can help as a church body. But this means that we are taking initiative in ministry and this is that every member ministry mindset that we're talking about. Now, the old saying is that 10% of the church members do 90% of the work. I don't know if you've heard that before. That may be true in some places. Uh, Praise God, I don't think those numbers are accurate here at Ramsey Creek. I see things happening here that encourage me so much, that excite me, and I hope you are seeing them too. Now, I think our percentages are different, but here's the problem when we get complacent in that. When we think, all right, we're doing, we're doing what we need to do. This is great. And then we sit back and then nothing happens. And needs go unmet. Ministry isn't happening organically and natural, naturally. And when the majority of us just start to assume, well, somebody else will do that. Somebody else will go. That's when we get into trouble. That's when we start to not live out the every member ministry mindset. Brothers and sisters, the time will come, if it hasn't already, the time will come when God is going to call you to step into a ministry. I don't know what that might mean, but God is going to call you into a ministry. And I would encourage you to say yes to his leading and his timing. God never calls Christians to be comfortable. He just doesn't. Think about the life of Jesus. Think about the life of those who followed him. The very first thing when Jesus called them, what did they do? They left everything they knew and everyone that they loved. Following Christ is not meant to keep us comfortable. Now, he tells us, don't be worried. Don't be anxious. But that doesn't mean you're never going to be asked to do something outside of your comfort zone. So I hope this morning that this is just a gentle reminder. Don't get too comfortable letting everybody else do the work of ministry in the church. I've seen here at church, I've seen, I see needs being met. I see relationships being deepened and positions being filled and discipleship happening regularly. Praise God for those things. But he's calling us to do it even more than we're doing it now. God has called every believer to evangelize, to proclaim the gospel. And he's also called and is equipping every believer to minister in and to the body. And it starts with people becoming believers and receiving grace according to the measure of Christ's gift that we see in verse 7, chapter 4. According to the measure of Christ's gift. Then all of these saints need the benefit of leaders who equip them to train them for ministry. But interestingly enough, who does it say that this ministry is for? So the leaders are equipping the saints, you the people, the church, for the work of ministry, and who is this ministry for? Maybe surprisingly to you, I don't know, it doesn't say that church members are being equipped to go and to save the lost. If you look at the end of our text in verse 16, it says that we are being equipped by leaders in the church, by the Spirit himself, for the building up of the body, for the building up of the body of Christ. This, this should mean, and I hope you hear this this morning, you are not an accident in the body of Christ here. You have a role to play. Jesus Christ has given you a gift out of his victory 
He's given you a gift to serve with. And I pray that you would take the gift that you're given and use it well. It looks different for each one of us, depending on the gift that God gives. But each one of us are called to use it. So all the saints are uniquely gifted by the grace of Jesus Christ himself. You have leaders given to equip you. But we still need, I find this so interesting, we still need the work of each other in our lives to fulfill this idea of building up the church body. It doesn't rest on one group or another. It's every person, would you call it togethering, Jason? One anothering. The, this every member ministry mindset leads to unity and maturity. And that's why leaders lead. So the church comes together in unity and in maturity. And first Paul says, if you look at verse 13, first Paul says it leads to, the, to unity of faith and unity of knowledge in the church as a whole. But I, I don't think we're going to attain unity of faith until we have knowledge of the fullness of Christ. It would be ridiculous to try and force unity in the church based on a kind of wishy-washy faith where you get to believe what you want about the Bible and you get to believe what you want about the Bible. You can believe whatever you want about the deity of Christ. We're just, we just want to be together in unity. Is that, is that really unity? I, I don't know that we could say that it is. I mean, technically we could force it in that way, but I don't think it would be much different than the unity that the Nazis had or the unity that the people in David Koresh's cult had. That was unity in a sense. That's, that's not the kind of unity that Paul is talking about. That's not unity over the knowledge of Jesus Christ because those groups, two specifically that I mentioned, were flawed from the start because they were not based on the unchangeable truth of God's word. And so instead of similar viewpoints or ideas... Unity in the church has to be based on the knowledge of the Son of God, Paul says in verse 13. Brothers and sisters, we have to be learning the truth about Jesus together. Our unity needs to be based on Jesus Christ alone. When we're doing that, Paul says something else is going to happen. On top of just unity in the body, something else is going to happen. The second thing on the list, maturity comes. Paul is still using the body metaphor And he contrasts in verse 13, he contrasts a mature man with little children in verse 14. I mentioned this last week. No adult likes being referred to as a child, as a kid. Most of the time, it would be an insult. Now, just to clarify, Paul is is not using this terminology like Jesus did in Matthew 18. Jesus was talking about the faith of a child. Paul is talking about the understanding of children. And he says, that's not what you want. You don't want that. It's the faith of a child is good and necessary for someone to believe, but the understanding of children needs to grow up, needs to mature. The understanding of children is lacking. It's not even close to being complete yet. You wouldn't give your six-year-old the keys to your car to let them go get milk from the store because they don't have the experience that's needed to get behind the wheel. Children are are fairly gullible. They're easily led astray. And so their parents, us as parents, have to teach them 
right from wrong, good from evil, appropriate behavior from inappropriate behavior as they grow up. These are things that are taught. Every believer enters the Christian life, the Christian walk as a little child, but no believer should be content to stay there. Every Christian should desire to grow into a mature disciple maker. How is a mature disciple maker or mature Christian described here? Paul has a list. You can follow along with me. Starting in verse 14, it says that a mature Christian is no longer a child. So their understanding is beyond that of a child. They're no longer tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. They're not easily led astray. Next, he says that they're not deceived by human cunning, craftiness, or deceitful schemes. They have some discernment as a maturing Christian. Verse 15, he says that a mature Christian speaks the truth in love and that they grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. Brothers and sisters, believers should be pursuing maturity, standing firm on what the Bible says, and eagerly speaking truth in a way that shows love and care for each other in the body. This is where it starts. If we can't speak truth to a brother or sister, how can we speak truth to a lost world? We have to speak the truth in love. So Christian maturity involves loving the truth. It involves speaking the truth. And it involves living the truth. Loving the truth, speaking the truth, and living the truth. Look at verse 16 with me. It's in Christ that the whole body is joined together. Every individual part of it and it works together so that it builds itself up, self up in love. So notice the end goal here of unity and maturity in the body. The end goal of this is the health and the growth of the body. Isn't, isn't that what we all want? I mean, don't we want to be a healthy and growing church where its members truly and genuinely love one another? I would think that that's what we all would say. Yeah, that's what we want. Well, I think Paul is showing us the way to do this. So follow this thread of thought. Follow this thought with me. We're going to work in, in reverse order. Okay, starting with verse 16 and moving backwards. But the end goal is that the body is building itself up in love. Okay, that's, that's the end. That's where Paul finishes this section. And so a body is going to be building itself up in love when it's working properly, verse 16 says. Well, a body that's working properly is when it's healthy, okay? So a body is healthy when it's growing up to maturity, verse 15. Now verse 11 and 12, a body is growing up to maturity when its members are using their gifts for the work of ministry and they're being equipped by their leaders, Members and leaders are using their gifts in harmony, verse 7 and 8 tell us, because the king gives grace to his people in gifts. He gives gifts to his people by his grace. The king gives gifts to his people by his grace because he descended to earth and has ascended far above the heavens, verse 9 and 10 tell us. Do you see the, the thread of thought that works backwards there? We, we attain unity in the body. We build ourselves up in love all the way to the beginning because Jesus descended and ascended. The church is able to grow as we should because Jesus took on human flesh. 
because He lived a perfect life, because He died in the place of sinners, because He rose victorious over the grave, and because He's now exalted at the right hand of God, reigning forever. That's how we have unity in the body. That's how the church body builds itself up in love because of what Christ has done. That's also why we don't give up on the church. It's why we don't give up on one another. Are we broken at times? Is this thing that we call church in America especially, is it broken at times? Yeah. Is it challenging at times? Sure. Absolutely. Are there some weeks when you just don't feel like it's worth it? being a part of this thing called the church. Probably there are. But it is worth it, brothers and sisters, because it was worth it for Christ. Later on, in Ephesians 5, we find out, Paul says it's worth it because Christ gave himself up for the church. He gave himself up for her. If she's worth it enough for Jesus to give himself up for the church, is the church worth it enough for you to give yourself up for the church? There's hope for every person And there's hope for every church because of the birth, the life, the death, the resurrection, and the glorification of Jesus Christ. That's why there's hope. But we have to stop and take stock of our own heart in all of this. And so these are just some questions for reflection as we close this morning. Think about these questions. Do you care about pursuing maturity in your Christian walk? Do you care about being mature in Christ? Or are you content to stay in spiritual diapers only eating what other people feed you? You guys connect those metaphors that I'm using, right? Okay. All right. Do you care about maturity? Or are you just content to stay where you're at? Another question to ponder. Are you passionate about using your God-given gifts to serve and build up the church? Are you passionate about that? Or would you rather just watch other people do the work of ministry? Are you working? Here's the last question to ask yourself this morning. Are you working towards unity in the body? Or do you spend your time thinking of ways to exalt yourself and put other people down? As we grow into Christ, as we use our gifts in love, guess what happens to the body of Christ here at Ramsey Creek? It gets healthier begins to grow. Maybe not in numerical numbers, but in ways that really matter in health. Yeah. That's the prescription that Paul has given to the church. Use your giftedness, serve one another, build one another up because of what Jesus has already done. So I would encourage you this morning, don't be comfortable with where you're at. I'm not saying that you should always be uncomfortable necessarily, but don't be comfortable with where you're at in ministry recognize that it's not just the paid staff who are supposed to do all the pastoring and all the mentoring. Now, God has called us and given us specific gifts to use in the body, but he's called you and given you specific gifts to use in the body as well. And we have to be doing it together, every joint working together for the church to be healthy. We want longevity here. We want maturity in our people and in the body of Christ here. The king has come back in victory And he gives gifts to his people for their benefit and for his glory. Let's pray. God, your your word seems very clear here. It has become clear to me this week that you have given each person in this church, each, each believer in Ramsey Creek, a gift to bless and build up the church here. Lord, I, I don't know what 
every person's individual gift is, but I know that you've gifted one to them and that we should all be very excited to utilize and build up the body with those gifts. And so, Lord, I pray that you would cause us maybe to be uncomfortable for a few moments here in evaluating what you're calling us to do. Because you may be calling us to start a ministry or to get involved in a ministry that we've not been involved in before. Lord, it could be just serving a church member and making a family our our mission to love them and to serve them deeply. Lord, but however we do it, whatever you call us to do, God, we remember and recognize that we can only do this because you have come to earth, took on flesh, lived a perfect life, died a sinner's death, and then rose victorious because there was no sin in you. Lord, and now you reign over all. Every knee will bow at your name one day. And so we bend it willingly now. God, I pray that you would stir in our hearts, make us uncomfortable so that we move into ministry as you call us, Lord. And Lord, if we have not ever called on your name for salvation, God, I pray that today would be the day. Move in this place through your spirit. In Christ's name, amen.